Amen. Wow. Whew. Praise the Lord. Was here for uh, their practice on Wednesday night. I couldn't even get through practice without tears uh, streaming down my face. And uh, what a cool moment of worship, uh, time of worship we've been able to have. And we're going to continue in worship this morning, worshiping our risen Savior by looking at the story of the resurrection in John chapter 20. So I want to invite you, if you have your Bible, if you have a Bible app on your phone, either way, uh, to turn there with me, John chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 17 this morning. John chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest news possible in the whole world, in the whole universe, for you and for me. We celebrate that this morning. Now this week, I have, a lot of you have commented on my suit that I'm wearing this morning. I don't get very many opportunities to wear. I don't want you to get used to it, so only every once in a while, you know. I got my new Easter tie, and uh, we, I didn't have this tie, was, I ordered it online, and the company that we got it from, when it was ready, sent, sent me an email and said, best news ever, your order is ready. I was like, man, seriously, on Easter week of all times, you're going to send me an email that says, best news ever, your order's ready? Now, I look pretty good in the tie, however, it's not the best news ever. I wanted to email their marketing department and say, you should, if you want to be accurate, you should change it to best news ever. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And on a completely unrelated note, your order is now ready. But I didn't send that. There's no greater news in the whole world than the fact that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. You could go home right this morning and find out that you won the $50 million jackpot. And it would, that news is kind of like, meh, all right compared to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the way that it changes you and transforms you and changes everything about you, changes everything about you, your past and your present and your eternal future. So we're going to talk about that this morning. What better time to talk about that than on Easter Sunday? So hopefully you've turned to John chapter 20 by now. I'm going to pray for us real quick and then we will dive into the text. So please bow your heads with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, What a beautiful name, indeed, the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Think about death couldn't hold him. That veil tore, that veil that was the keep out sign between us and you, our Father. And the moment Jesus Christ died on that cross, that veil, you ripped it from top to bottom. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, conquering death forever. We praise you, God. These truths, in some ways, are too big for us to comprehend, and yet you allow us to see it in your word. So we just pray, as we look to your word now, that you would use it to change us, to transform us, that your spirit would move in this place and work in every single one of our hearts, Lord. Guard my mouth as I preach. May you be glorified in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are uh, many different reasons to come to an Easter service at church. A lot of different reasons to come. Probably a lot that are represented in this room this morning. <clears throat> For some of you, Easter is your favorite day of the year. Like, like the moment you take the Christmas tree down, you're circling Easter on your calendar. It's like, all right, when's Easter this year, right? You can't wait. 
get all excited, and here we are. Now we're celebrating together. For others of you, it's maybe not, maybe it's uh, just a tradition, right? You come to church on Easter, it's just what you do. You go to fireworks on 4th of July, you make a turkey on Thanksgiving, you come to church on Easter. For others in this room, let's just be honest, just be real. You can be real with me, it's okay. Maybe you were a bit coerced to come to church on Easter Sunday. Maybe you knew uh, your uh, mother-in-law wasn't going to let you have any of those scalloped potatoes after, that you're having in the meal after church if you didn't come to church first and they were smelling real good in the oven, so you thought, okay, I'll come. Or kids, you know, maybe you got an Easter basket this morning and your parents said you can't have any of the candy until after church and you just can't wait to get into those peeps, right? How many peeps people are in here, by the way? Raise your hand if you're a peeps person. It's kind of, I don't know. But whatever your reason for being here this morning, here's what I suspect. I'm just going to throw it out there. I suspect that there are some of you in this room today that have exactly zero expectation of encountering a risen Savior this morning. When you came to church this morning, Some of you expect your life to change afterwards just as much as you expect your life to change by going to work on Monday morning, meaning not at all. And if that's you, I just want to speak to you for a moment and say, I I get it. I'm very sympathetic to that point of view. Because what we're claiming here this morning is kind of crazy, isn't it, in some ways, when you really think about it. We're claiming that the Son of God came to earth 2,000 years ago, lived a perfect life, never did anything wrong, was put to death, and that death was a punishment for all of our sin this many years later. And then not only did he die, but he literally rose up from the grave three days later. That's what we're claiming this morning. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? And so if you came here today with just no expectation whatsoever of actually encountering a risen, resurrected Jesus, I just want to say I get it. In fact, you actually have a lot in common with the people that we're going to see in John chapter 20. Every person we're going to see in this account of the resurrection in John chapter 20 was exactly like that. They had no expectation that Jesus was going to be alive. When Jesus died on the cross that Friday, we call Good Friday, it wasn't like they were sitting around and saying, well, this is bad, but it's okay because he's going to rise again on Sunday. Not a single person expected that. It wasn't even the back of their mind like a remote possibility. Well, maybe he'll rise from the dead. To them, Jesus was dead, and that means just like it did for every other person before and every other person after, which means dead. That's what they thought. But Jesus wasn't dead. He was alive. And when they saw him with their own eyes, they knew it. They knew that he was alive. And so that's my prayer for you this morning. Not that I can somehow convince you that Jesus Christ is alive, but that Jesus himself will convince you that he's alive. That he'll meet with you personally and that walking out this door, even though you didn't expect it, even though it was the furthest thing from your mind when you got ready this morning, that your life is going to change forever. 
by hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. That's my prayer this morning. We're going to pick up the story, actually, just real briefly in John chapter 19. Jesus has just been put to death on the cross. Joseph Joseph of Arimathea, who is a wealthy disciple of Jesus, asked for the body, and uh, he took it and he buried it in a tomb which was sealed by a large stone. It wasn't like a a dug grave, it was more like a cave, and they they rolled a large stone in front of it to seal it off. Jesus died on Friday, and so because it was a Friday, and the Sabbath was the very next day, so they were in a rush to get everything, Jesus' body ready, and to get him buried in the tomb, because they weren't allowed to do any work on the Sabbath. And so there was this big rush to get Jesus' body ready uh, to be buried and buried, and so they actually kind of skipped some things. They didn't fully prepare his body for burial, and so that brings us to Sunday morning. Look with me if you have your Bibles at verse 1 of John chapter 20. It says this, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. We know from the other Gospels there were actually several uh, women who went to the tomb with the intention of finishing the preparation of Jesus' body for burial. You also notice the absence of any men that were going to the tomb. These were some gutsy women. women. Let's just say, let's just say that right up front. All of Jesus' male disciples were afraid for their life because any association with Jesus, who had just been put to death, could very well have meant death for them too. We had some gutsy women in the Bible, and they went to the tomb to finish the preparations for Jesus' burial. And John tells us the story, even though we know there are multiple women there, John tells us the story from Mary Magdalene's perspective. I love this. Mary Magdalene had a very special relationship with Jesus. Early on in Jesus' ministry, like right at the beginning, about three years prior, she was possessed by seven demons, and Jesus healed her from those demons. And so Mary Magdalene now is on her way to prepare Jesus' body for burial. And in the other Gospels, we see they're not quite sure what they're going to do about this big stone that's in front of the tomb. They haven't quite made out all their plans yet, how they're going to take care of it. But they get there, and they see they don't have to worry about the stone because it's been rolled away. So put yourself there in that moment. The stone has been rolled away. What would you think? You'd probably think the same thing that Mary Magdalene thought, which is that grave robbers... Stole Jesus' body. That was just the first thought that came to her mind. It was the only reasonable thing to come to mind. There would be nothing else that would have come to her mind when she saw the stone rolled away. I don't want to be weird here, but if you went to the grave of a loved one who had passed away and you saw like the headstone was gone and the coffin had been dug up and it was gone, you would think somebody took it, right? You probably wouldn't think, oh, great, they're alive. Let me go find them. No, of course not. You wouldn't even come through your mind. The same thing is happening here. Mary thought someone stole the body. So verse 2 tells us what happened next. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John, who's the author of this gospel, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. Someone stole Jesus' body and, and we can't find it. So now Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. 
Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love this uh, detail in here because John's the one who wrote this. He says, basically, I don't know, he's kind of bragging. I dusted him in a foot race, is what he's saying. Although it's not much to brag about because he was, uh, John was a lot younger than Peter. But either way, he's, I beat him there. And then John gets to the tomb first, and then verse 5 tells us what happened next. Stooping to look in. So he's not in the tomb, he's outside the tomb, but he's a little closer than Mary was. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So you can see we're kind of getting brought closer and closer inside the tomb. Mary, the only detail she picks up is that the stone was rolled away. And now John gets a little bit closer, he sees the linen cloths lying there. Why is that so important to the story? Simply put, it's really weird. It doesn't make any sense. If grave grave robbers had, in fact, taken Jesus' body, they wouldn't have taken his burial clothes off. Wouldn't have happened. There would no reason for it. So it's weird. It's one of these details. I don't know if you ever have, sometimes, you know, I feel like things happen where I just, it's so bizarre and I don't really have any explanation for it, so I just kind of move on, right? You ever have that? It's like, I'm not even going to try to figure that out. Just moving on with my life. That's kind of what's happening. Okay, the clothes are there. That's weird. And then, just as John's starting to kind of think about this, good old Peter, I love Peter, just comes barreling right in. He's late. He's slower than John. He's out of breath. He doesn't wait. He sees John standing outside the tomb. He doesn't care. He just barrels right in. Then Simon Peter, verse 6, came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. Same thing that John saw. And, verse 7, the face cloth, catch this, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. This is the weirdest detail of all. This makes no sense. Maybe you can get behind the idea that uh, Jesus' body has been stolen. And maybe you see his burial clothes lay there and you don't know why, but you're like, okay, for some reason they had to take off his burial clothes. But they wouldn't have folded the face cloth neatly and set it aside in a place by itself. It wouldn't have done that. There's no explanation for that at all. It makes no sense. And this, when John sees it, causes him to believe that the impossible has happened. Verse 8. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Do you see what they're saying? It's saying they weren't expecting, even though scripture foreshadows this and tells us that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead. They didn't understand that yet. But John saw and believed because he couldn't come up with any other explanation for the stone being rolled away, the burial clothes laying there, and the face cloth folded up neatly and laying in a place by itself. So John believes. Verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes. He didn't understand it from Scripture. He wasn't expecting it, but he believes. Peter, on the other hand, doesn't believe yet. So how did he rationalize what he saw? I don't know. I have no idea. 
Maybe he thought this was just all an elaborate scheme to make it look like Jesus rose from the dead. I don't know. Maybe that's what you think too. We'll talk about that more in a moment. The point is, John sees this and believes. Peter sees it, doesn't believe yet. And now we turn our attention back to Mary Magdalene. Because for her, the empty tomb wasn't enough to convince her either. But for her, something incredible happened. And we're not given the exact timeline of how all these things take place, but Mary, who's clearly emotional, has returned to the tomb by herself to try to process everything that has gone on in the past three days. Look at verse 11. So great. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Imagine she's just going back to just process what's happening. So she's just standing outside the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. I don't know, maybe something caught her eye. Verse 12, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. She didn't recognize them as angels. I don't know why. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. This is the exact same report that she had just given to Peter and John. Jesus' body has been stolen. And then right then, she hears something behind her. It catches her attention. She turns around. Verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Wow, there's a lot to unpack here. I don't know about you, I'm a real sucker for these videos that you see sometime of like soldiers returning home from war, from overseas, and uh, they're, fa- they're surprising their family, right? They don't know it's there. And maybe, I don't know, sometimes they're like dressed up in a disguise and they go and they, they talk to the family for a little bit and then they remove the disguise and it's revealed that uh, it's their father and he's home or their mother and she's home and everyone's just weeping and I'm just sitting in my computer just weeping like a baby. I love this. I imagine kind of that's what Jesus felt like only times a million. I mean, imagine that. He's done it. He's accomplished everything. And he's standing there and he's talking to Mary and she doesn't know it's him yet. He doesn't call her by name at first. He says, woman, which is a term of endearment. He's not saying this in a harsh way by any means. Woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? He knows when he says that, she's not going to recognize him yet. She thinks he's the gardener. Think about what Mary's best hope is when she sees this man that she thinks is the gardener. Her best hope is that maybe his body wasn't, in fact, stolen. Maybe instead there was just some reason he had to be removed from the tomb. And maybe this guy knows where the body is. And so maybe he can tell her where the body is so she can go and dress Jesus' dead body and prepare it for final burial. That's her best hope. Her best hope is that Jesus is still dead, but maybe she can at least see the body. 
Man, sometimes our best hope is so much less than what God has for us, isn't it? She was two seconds away from an encounter with a living Jesus, and she had no idea, none, but Jesus did. And he knew there was one word, one word that he could say that would make her recognize right away that it was him. What does he say? Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. He called her by her name, and she knew his voice. I love this. She didn't recognize him at first. She even had a conversation with him without realizing it was him. But the moment he says her name, Mary, she knew. You know what? John 10, 3 through 4, tells us this very thing. It says, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The sheep follow him. Why? Because they know his voice. He knows his sheep by name. He calls them by name and they know his voice. This literally just happened with Mary. She heard the good shepherd call her name and she knew exactly who it was. She turned to him and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She sees Jesus. She can't believe it. And it's only just starting to get good here, church. She throws her arms around him. She gives him a big hug. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now this is a strange thing for Jesus to say, right? We're in this like huge climactic moment. One of the climactic moments in all of scripture where Jesus has just revealed himself to the, for the very first time as being resurrected. Mary gives him a hug, the most natural thing in the world to do. And Jesus says what? Don't cling to me. What's up with that? It's weird, right? How, I really, as I thought about this and studied this, it, I think it just depends how you read it. I read this verse with Jesus almost kind of half-joking with her, laughing, embracing her right back. But she's grabbing on as you would, right? She's holding tight because he was dead and now he's alive and he gra she grabs on. And so what's he say? He says, you don't have to grab me like I'm leaving right now. I'm not ascending to the Father just yet. We've got some time together. But I've got a mission for you. Immediately after she encounters the living Jesus, he gives her a mission. Let's look at that, what that mission is. He says, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now this is one of those verses that would be easy for us to just gloss over but it is loaded with significance here. He tells her to go to the disciples to tell them that he's alive. But he doesn't call them the disciples, does he? What does he call them? You can say it. What's he call them? My brothers. My brothers. That's interesting. As I was studying this week, I decided to look up how many times in the book of John Jesus refers to the disciples as his brothers. You know how many times he refers to the disciples as his brothers in the book of John? One, right here. 
He tells them to go to my father and your father. So I looked up how many times does Jesus refer to God the Father as my father in the book of John in the first 20 chapters. In the first 14 chapters alone, it's 25 times. It's a major theme in the book of John. That God is Jesus' father. So then I looked up how many times does he call God your father referring to somebody else. You know how many times? This time and that's it. I thought, surely he refers to God as your God in the book of John. Somewhere else. Nope, just here. Do you understand what's happening? Jesus is telling Mary, you're my family now. He suffered and died and he'd been raised. And now he gets to receive the reward of his suffering, the reward of his obedience, which is that his disciples are now his family. And we are so blessed in the Nafziger house to have been able to adopt our son, Owen. Some, many of you in this room have uh, gone through the blessing of adoption as well. And as you, if you've gone through that process, you know firsthand the incredible joy and relief and satisfaction that you feel when the judge in the courtroom brings down that final gavel and the adoption is finalized and nothing can change it. Even if you knew it was coming, there's nothing like that first time when you hold your child in your arms. Say, you're my son now. You're my daughter now. I'm your dad. I'm your mom. And nothing can change that. There is nothing like that moment in a parent's life. And for the very first time, Jesus, the moment he's resurrected, what does he say? Tell my brothers that I'm alive. Tell my brothers that I'm going to see their dad. The adoption has been finalized. I've died and I've been raised from the dead. And now you're my family. And there's nothing in that can change it. My disciples are my brothers and my sisters. And my father, Jesus says, is their father too. And do you know what? John told us that this was coming in the very beginning of the book of John. Chapter 1, verse 12, he said, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. And now it's happened right here in John chapter 20. But it took the resurrection to do it. Jesus tells Mary, go tell my brothers that because of what I've done, now they are children of God. Wow. Praise the Lord. It's amazing. God's word is amazing. So what do we do with all this? Well, we need to go back to that original question. Why are you here this morning? What brought you in? For some of you, you're here to worship your risen Savior. He's called you by name already, and you believed, and you're following him, and you're here to worship this morning. I'd say to God's glory, that's definitely taken place. But like I said before, there's probably some in this room who came in here with just no intention whatsoever of encountering a risen Savior today. Maybe you came to church with attitude like Mary had going to the grave the first time, expecting to find Jesus cold and dead. And if that's you, 
My hope for you is the same reason that John wrote this book in the first place. You look at verse 30 of chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus did a bunch of other stuff, John said. I didn't write everything he did in this book, but I wrote these things so that you would believe and that when you believe, you would have life in his name. That's what I want for you this morning. Just putting all my cards on the table. I want you to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And there's all sorts of arguments that we could make that certainly point to the fact that we have good reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Like the burial clothes being folded up neatly in the tomb. Or the fact that Jesus' body was never found, even though there were many people who were highly motivated to find it. To try to squash this upstart religion of all these people claiming that Jesus was alive and causing all sorts of problems. Plenty of people were super motivated to find Jesus' body, but it was never found. Found. Or perhaps the most convincing of all, which is that Jesus appeared to many people after he died, and that his disciples all went from being afraid and ashamed and scared for their life after Jesus died, to every single one of them being willing to be killed for claiming to believe that Jesus, for claiming that Jesus was alive. You would certainly be hard-pressed to find that many people willing to die for something that they knew was a lie. So maybe like John, when he went to the tomb and he saw the evidence in front of him, maybe that's enough for you to believe. But maybe it's not. Because the truth is, if you wanted to, you could just explain all those things away or simply not think about them. Leave here this morning, you never have to think about it again. It's like Peter, you just kind of ignore, the, the, you don't, just don't process these things. But there's one thing that you can't ignore. There's one thing you can't explain away, and it's this final question that I have for you this morning. Is Jesus calling your name? Is he calling your name? Mary heard her name, and she believed. Jesus said, I call my sheep by my name, and my sheep follow me because they know my voice. So maybe you came in with no expectation of your life being changed, but now you hear him calling your name. Don't ignore that. Don't think it away. Don't rationalize it away. Don't think of all the million excuses why it can't be true. It is true. Believe. Pray right now if you want to. He hears you. Repent of your sin. What does that mean? It's just a weird way Christians say, tell God you messed up a whole bunch. You couldn't fix it on your own, and you needed Jesus to fix it for you. Repent of your sin and tell him that you believe. You believe he died on the cross, and he rose again on the third day, and follow him. And if you do that, you're in God's family just like that. Just like that. That's it. There's no hoops to jump through, no penance to pay. No theological test you have to take on your way out the door to make sure you got everything just right. No. Believe, Jesus says, like the thief on the cross. What did he know? Nothing except Jesus right next to him said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. That's what Jesus says to you if you believe. 
So believe. And if you do that, Jesus says, you're my brother, you're my sister. And my father is your father, and my God is your God. You need to believe. And so in just a moment, we're going to sing together. If you want to take a moment with the Lord in your seat, or you can even if you want to come up here and, and kneel in front of the stage, I know it's a big, bold step. You're welcome to do that and pray with one of the pastors up here. Or if you want to talk to myself or anyone around here who's wearing a Rock Prairie shirt after the service, any one of them would love to talk to you. Please do whatever it takes. Get your heart, get yourself right with the Lord. Don't explain it away. Don't rationalize it away. If he's calling your name, believe and be saved. Answer and find life in the beautiful name of Jesus, our risen Lord and Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, my Father, our Father, our Father, not by anything that we've done, not by any moral test we pass, not by anything other than the work of Christ. He died and he rose again. And the moment he raised to life with that curtain torn in two, he calls all who follow him my brothers, my sisters. Thank you, God. We praise you for that this morning. We praise you that you have taken us from death to life. Lord, if there's anyone in here who doesn't know you, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation, that they wouldn't delay any longer. None of us knows how much time we have. All the time that we have is time that you've given us, God. So may they not delay another moment, but may they come to you in faith, repenting of their sin and believing that Jesus did, in fact, raise from the dead. We thank you, God. We praise you. You are so, so undeservedly good to us, and we give you all the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.